Welcome to Copyright Clearance in this podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, February 15th, 2019. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, who joins me today from the magazine's offices in New York City. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So the final numbers for 2018 book sales were reported this week. And as we expected, the year turned out to be somewhat decent for trade publishers, at least. Certainly thanks to all those Trump books. That's right. The 2018 numbers are in from the Association of American Publishers. And we should note earlier than in past years. So kudos to AAP. And you know the data shows that there was a small decline overall for the publishing sector in 2018, about four-tenths of a percent. Total revenue for the nearly 1,400 reporting publishers to the AAP was about $14.5 billion in 2018, and that was down about $57 million from 2017. But this is not the final word, I would add here, too, because later this year, AAP is going to release final figures that include sales estimates from publishers that don't report to the association, that are part of the stat shot group. So, you know, who knows that small, small overall dip could actually be, become a slight gain or it become, could become a bigger dip. Uh, we will soon see. But as you mentioned, if you're a trade publisher, don't focus on that small dip for the publishing sector overall, because the adult trade category had the largest gain of the year with sales from reporting publishers up a very healthy 5.1% over 2017 to $5.13 billion. That includes sales of religious books, which were up 4.5% and children's young adult category, which was up 3.3%. And along with the adult books that composes the segment classified by the AAP as adult trade. And yes, you can probably pin a good chunk of that gain on Michelle Obama and the range of Trump books that accounted for millions of copies sold in 2018. But the story, once again, format-wise, downloadable audio for the year up 37.1%, now at $469 million in revenue. That's real money. And that's from uh, reporting publishers that actually, when you fold in the physical audio segment as well, uh, like CDs and stuff, there's still a little a bit of that going on. You're over 500 million, about 515 million from audio publishers alone. And with the growth curve for audio still trending up, uh, you can really envision audio becoming a billion dollar business for trade publishers and probably within the decade. So Good news on the audio front. Ebooks, on the other hand, well, the good news seems to be that we're getting closer to the floor, I think, for ebooks. Uh, in 2018, ebook trade sales from reporting publishers once again declined, this time down about 3.6% from last year's figures, sales of about a billion dollars for ebooks. Um, so for ebooks, the decline continues, but you know, looking at overall publishers' digital operations, um, digital audio is more than making up for those declines. All right, then. So good news for trade publishers. But Andrew, what if you're not a trade publisher? Ah, well, then 2018 was a year to forget, I think, for many, uh, at least the educational segment, for sure. The, the two major educational publishing segments, uh, higher ed course materials and pre-K instructional materials, had revenue declines of 7.2% and 4.6%, respectively. And sales of professional books also dropped down 2.7%. And this one hurts for me as a former university press publisher myself. Uh, small university presses, that 
segment had the largest revenue decline of all. Sales were down 9.5% to just over $50 million. So I don't want to depress anyone any further. So I'll just say we'll have more on the numbers in Monday's issues of Publishers Weekly. So you can check that out in print or online. And in addition to the AAP stats, the U.S. Census Bureau delivered its own figures for November 2018 book sales. Any conclusions to draw from those? Yeah, so the Census Bureau reported that November bookstore sales jumped significantly to $729 million, up from $663 million a year ago. That's a, a fat increase of almost 10%. 9.9%, I think, was the official number. Uh, and that's, of course, according to preliminary returns. Now, what conclusion can I draw from that? Well, let's call it the Michelle Obama effect. You know, the, the, a sales spike happened in November, no doubt was fueled by the success of Michelle Obama's Becoming, which came out on November 13th. And it suggests to me that bookstores probably had a pretty good holiday season. You know, I know when I go to a bookstore, I never leave with just one book, especially not during the holiday season. So all the shoppers who went in to pick up Michelle's book, chances are they got a stocking stuffer from somebody else. But there's two things that I would add to that. One is that the strong November sales follow a 7.2% bump in October as well, which was also strong. So, hey, that's the makings of what we might call a rally. Uh, but before we get too excited, there's also reports this week from Bloomberg and in other parts of the media that the Commerce Department has uh, issued reports showing that retail sales plunged in December for some reason, down 1.4%. And that's the biggest drop since March of 2009. So I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but it will be interesting to see what bookstore sales look like for December against that backdrop. When CCC's Beyond the Book returns, Andrew Albanese tells us who are the latest entrants in the battle over controlled digital lending. I'm Christopher Keneally. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly and host of the new PW podcast, Publishers Weekly Insider. Each week, we'll talk to PW editors, authors, and other industry guests about the biggest and most exciting stories and books in the world of publishing. New episodes of PW Insider premiere every Friday. So listen at publishersweekly.com slash PW Insider or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to subscribe to PW Insider on iTunes. I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book. It's Friday, February 15th, 2019. And Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly joins me today as he does each week with news and analysis from the world of publishing. A recurring story throughout the winter, Andrew, is an outcry from publishers and authors against a library book scanning practice known as Controlled Digital Lending, CDL. And this week, the National Writers Union issued an appeal against the practice, and already 36 international organizations have signed on. What's your take on the NWU appeal, and is this issue turning ripe for some kind of action? Yeah, so you know, as I wrote in my story this week, if you thought the controversy over library book scanning ended with the Google case, think again. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, you know, this week the National Writers Union became the latest organization to join the outcry over controlled digital lending. And I'll explain that practice quickly once again for our listeners. Uh, it's when a library or a nonprofit like the Internet Archive, who feature prominently in this story, when they scan a print copy of a book they've legally acquired and then make the scan available to be borrowed in lieu of the print book using uh, some DRM protected one user, one copy model. And crucial taking the corresponding print book out of circulation while they lend that digital scan. Uh, 
Uh, and you know, as far as these statements go, like for the NWU statement itself, my reaction is mixed. You know, on one hand, as these statements often do, it sort of mischaracterizes what CDL is about a little bit, and it's you know, it's a little patronizing. NWU's Edward Hasbrook writes that, and I'm going to quote him here, writes that well-meaning librarians, archivists, and readers who don't intend to deprive authors of their livelihoods are being misled by false claims from proponents of CDL. Well, no. These librarians and archivists have been working hard in this space for years and grappling with all the complexities, not only of the law, but also of the library's mission in the digital age. So you may disagree with how they're doing this stuff, but no, librarians are not being misled here. They, they're working very hard in this space and doing the best they can. But where I'm going to go out and praise Mr. Hasbrook's statement is that he's called for a dialogue among writers, authors, publishers, and librarians on how to enable and create, he says, the digital libraries we all want and in ways that fully respect authors' rights. I could totally get behind that. That's a great idea. And, you know, speaking for myself and not my publication, I say bravo to that suggestion. Let's have a dialogue about this and let's not have it in court. <laughs> That's my request right now. Even though the headlines are always interesting to write about, let's not ramp up the bellicose talk over this practice because it never really leads to anything good. Like, for example, court, because once we wind up in court, as we've seen in so many cases over the last decade or so, things can never go quite as planned. And worse, the dialogue stops. In your story, Andrew, you wondered out loud why this uproar and why now? Are you finding anything out on that front? So still looking, but not really. No, you know, Though I know that the AEP has been asking publishers to sort of monitor the Internet Archive's open library site going back to 2017, I'm not really sure why this is ripening so quickly. Uh, of course, the most visible proponent of controlled digital lending and the clear target of all of this opposition is the Internet Archive and its ambitious open library project. So I'm looking much more deeply at what the open library project is all about, and I'll have more reports on that in the coming weeks. But honestly, I don't know why this is suddenly ripening. Uh, the Open Library Initiative was formed back in 2006 with the vision of creating one web page for every book ever published. But, you know, over the last 12 years, under the auspices of the Internet Archive, it's evolved into a broader library initiative that's been recognized by the state of California. And according to its website, the Open Library Project has made over 3 million digital books available to be borrowed, including in some in copyright books. And a post on the Open Library blog says it lent 1.3 million books last year. So, you know, that's less than a half a lend for every book in its collection, which is pretty low. Uh, and for perspective, uh, leading ebook service provider Overdrive reported last month that libraries in 2018 lent a total of 274 million digital books to library cardholders around the world. So 1.3 million is a pretty small percentage of that, too. And then we're only talking about digital books, too. And when we talk about controlled digital lending, we're talking about print and digital because you can only lend one or the other. And if you factored in all of the billions of library lends from around the world, doesn't seem like it's a really major issue. So who knows why this is ripening now? Maybe it's being fought mostly on principle. Uh, you know, the idea that the open libraries lending 1.3 million books uh, and not knowing how many of these are public domain or orphaned. It's hard to see how the library is having a noticeable financial impact on authors. 
Again, it seems much more likely rooted in principle, but I get the principle. I get why authors look at this and say, hey, I, I, what's going on here? Uh, but honestly, I do wish everyone would sort of take a breath and try to understand what this controlled digital lending is really all about. And you know, focus a little also on you know, why the library is seeing the need to make a digital copy first. Uh, as I said last week, Yes, there probably is a legal issue to be worked out here, almost certainly more than one, uh, and probably not just around the scanning and sharing of these books. But what concerns me is the, this march to war rhetoric over a program that I'm pretty certain is not really having much of an impact. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be much more discussion to come, but I'd encourage all these associations to follow Mr. Hasbrook's advice here and go for the dialogue and let the lawyers and policymakers focus on bigger battles uh, and market developments that really are affecting authors' bottom lines and publisher bottom lines as well. You know, put it this way, trust me that no one in the library community wants to be spending their resources, whether it's time or money, making scans of print books and then wondering if they're going to get sued over them. So there's a business solution here. And another business challenge for publishers uh, came up at the annual PubWest conference in Santa Fe over last weekend, and that was the most discussed speech by Open Markets Institute senior fellow Lena Khan, who gave a rousing keynote, you say, that suggested Amazon is ripe for antitrust action. Indeed, the recent episode of Beyond the Book, uh, released on Monday, featured Lena Khan and her take on what she calls Amazon's antitrust paradox. So what was the reaction there in Santa Fe? Yeah, rousing stuff indeed from Lena Khan, who told attendees that more than any other firm, Amazon depicts how a company can come to monopolize all sorts of markets without triggering scrutiny under our anti-monopoly laws. Khan went on to detail the online retailer's sheer dominance of the publishing marketplace. For example, she noted that Amazon is a seller of books, a publisher of books, a printer of books, and dominant in both the e-reader and e-book markets. Uh, it's both a third-party marketplace and a merchant of its own private labels, which creates a huge conflict of interest. So Jason Boog, our reporter there, says Khan earned a sustained standing ovation from attendees and really sparked a lot of conversations throughout the conference. Uh, ABA, American Booksellers Association CEO, Oren Teicher singled out the session as indispensable uh, and you know really brought up Amazon's what he called extraordinarily negative effect on book selling. And Teicher said that it's, it comes down to all of us in the book business to take the opportunity that we have the responsibility to start to educate ourselves, our customers, and the folks we deal with both in and out of our businesses about Amazon's broader impact on the overall U.S. economy. So you can read more about the speech on the PW site as well. And, you know, I have to say it's compelling. You know, Khan's argument really is compelling if fraught for publishers. And by that, I mean, on the one hand, you know, you see the Association of American Publishers really sort of setting their sights on libraries over PDF scans of old books, but they don't really say much about Amazon's practices. And you can understand why, because for all the uneasiness among publishers about Amazon's practices, they still have to do business with them. They still have to negotiate with them. Publishers depend on Amazon. Uh, but I think that LenaCon and this long overdue discussion about antitrust are going to have an effect. So having Con at PubWest, I hope, is the start of a really good discussion. 
Well, indeed, uh, Andrew Lena Khan impressed me too, as she said uh, in the podcast interview. Amazon has become a form of infrastructure for 21st century commerce. If you want to reach consumers in the 21st century, you have to ride Amazon's rails. And our own podcast train here at CCC's Beyond the Book arrives every Friday, bringing Andrew Albanese with a report on the week's news in publishing. Thanks for joining me today, Andrew. My pleasure, as always. Coming next on Beyond the Book, as an entrepreneur in publishing, Richard Charkin had checked none of the usual boxes when he began his new venture. Indeed, he has boasted that his new company, Mensch Publishing, is a house with no mission statement and no stated editorial strategy. What matters instead is that the imprint only live up to its name, to do business with honor and integrity. As I approach 70, and look back on an unbelievably enjoyable, rewarding, challenging, stimulating, fun career, I realized that the one thing I hadn't done was to spend my own money and do things the way I really wanted to do them on behalf of authors and readers. So this was an opportunity. How much does it change things, Richard, that you're now spending your own money rather than someone else's money? changes everything. Um, I've started delivering uh, proofs by hand in order to save the postage. I'm not sure many major publishers do that. Uh, I keep an eye on absolutely everything. I'm discovering things that I never, never knew about how the nuts and bolts of the business work. Richard Charkin and the birth of Mensch Publishing next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center. Our co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. Subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The complete Beyond the Book podcast archive is available at beyondthebook.com. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening and join us again soon on CCC's Beyond the Book. 